Welcome to Obsessed Show, a podcast that is designed to inspire, featuring some of the most creative people in the world. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Welcome to season four of Obsessed Show. You'll note that we are no longer calling it Obsessed with Design. This season, we'll still be chatting with designers from branding, illustration, architecture, and design thinking, but we'll also be talking to other makers and creatives along the way. In fact, when we started the show, the plan all along was to broaden out and talk to other guests eventually, which was part of why our website and Twitter handle and Instagram are all Obsessed Show. If you're into what we're doing here, you might also want to check out my personal branding and marketing tips called 59 Second Friday. That's over at youtube.com slash Josh Miles. That's enough about season four. Let's talk about today's episode. Today on Obsessed Show, I'm chatting with Chief Creative Officer of Global Experience Agency, Critical Mass, Connor Brady. Prior to joining Critical Mass, he worked at digital agencies Huge and Organic, holding the title of Chief Creative Officer at each. Throughout his career, he's played a decisive role in shaping the digital experiences of BMW, Apple, Marriott, Nike, Hilton, Audi, Revolt TV, Samsung, and Pepsi. Just in case you guys don't recognize any of those brand names, those are those are big things. <laughs> His work has won awards across the globe from Cannes to London to Asia. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Connor Brady. Okay, kids, all the way from just outside of Connecticut and the Massachusetts border, I think is where we're talking to you from today. Connor, welcome to Obsessed Show. Yeah, thanks very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm not sure the Connecticut-Massachusetts border is a design hub of the world, but it is today. <laughs> it's it's the traditional. <laughs> yeah, it's a very country uh, epicenter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Connor, I I definitely want to talk to you about um, what's happening, especially in the digital experience realm, and kind of how you guys work, um, but. As most of my listeners will know, I always enjoy hearing origin stories. Um, and in particular, how did you find yourself in the agency biz? Like what, what kind of led you to this point in your career? Uh, it, was, it was a very kind of meandering path. I'm not sure at, at any point I ever sat down and said, my, my goal is to be in an agency. It's, it's, uh, it all came through opportunity. I think, you know, I kind of find design through music mostly. Um, you know, sort of looking at record covers and sort of being inspired by, by, by that sort of side of design. I think I was inspired by design and didn't even know it, I was, it was happening at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you go through college and you discover you've got an ability to sort of do things like that. And when I left college, I actually ended up working in book publishing. And I did book jacket design for a good 10 years. Um, you know, for Random House, I did the first 100 books for vintage paperbacks and was sold on being a book designer for my career. And then, you know, next thing comes along, I end up doing some record covers through friends. Then I'm a music cover designer. So it's, it's sort of that sort of ambient sort of connection with just people introducing me to things and sort of wanting to try things out. I think started to sort of hone in my idea of being a designer and what it meant, sort of helping people solve problems. I mean, that, that's sort of where it all started. Um, but into the agency world was kind of interesting. When I was working at Universal Music, um, this was kind of pre-iTunes, so I'll give you a sense of the time frame. Um, we were starting to think about doing uh, websites for artists, so whenever they would go on tour, you could have a, a site 
um, that would basically promote your merchandising ticket sales. We didn't do that. So we actually ended up hiring Razorfish, uh, 1.0 Razorfish back <laughs> in bubble um, to sort of help do that. And I ended up meeting Olaf, who was the chief grape officer there and one of the original Razorfish founders. Um, and that got me my introduction into the agency world that I'm still in today and I've stayed in over the last sort of 15, 16 years. Um, so again, it's like, it wasn't like a conscious decision. So I, my goal is to be a CCO at a digital agency. It, it, it just kind of happened. Um, but that's, that's great because it's meant I've got a very eclectic skill set and a very eclectic sort of experience. Um, and I think that's all sort of coming to pay off now. I think things are starting to merge and come together, which is, it's an exciting time. So our, our keen listeners may have picked up already. That's probably not a Boston accent that they're hearing. No, but it's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Belfast in Northern Ireland, um, and pretty much at like 18, like most of my friends at the time, we were growing up in Belfast whenever it was not a good place to grow up in. And, you know, college was a way out. College was a way to sort of go somewhere else and experience something different. I ended up going to London and went to art college in London and sort of stayed there working in the publishing industry and the music industry. Um, and I actually started working with research in London there. and. Uh, you know, it was one of those things, hey, would you go to New York for six weeks? And 16 years later, I'm still here. So <laughs> that's how that happens. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about critical mass. Like what, what's kind of the focus and what is that whole digital experience thing about? Um, it, when I look at the, most of the agencies around today that, that have been around the last maybe, eight, maybe 15, 18, 20 years, like really since digital started, I mean, critical mass has been there and kind of been been through a lot of the, the sort of the change that happens in digital. I mean, one of the fun facts I found out when I first joined the company, they did the original Nike ID like 18 years ago. Oh. Um, so, you know, when you, and you look at it today and you, you look at it as a piece of work and it's like, you know, 800 pixels, but 600 pixels with like 10 colors. And you look at where we've come and where our digital design has evolved from that to where we are today, where it's on the same level as cinema, really. Um, I think where we've ended up as an agency and why we call ourselves an experienced design agency, I think whenever you touch a digital product today, it's more than just pressing a button with a mouse, which is where digital kind of started. And there's so many other things involved in it now when it comes to moving image, you know, interaction design, audio design, visual design, um, you know, user insight and research, if you figure out if you're doing the right thing. Like all those things kind of have to come together in a, in a very coherent way. And, and to me, that's the bigger idea of experience design. I think that's really what we're about. I mean, that's what we're doing for most of our clients right now. We're not doing a single thing for them. We're doing multiple things for them across multiple screens and multiple platforms. I think that skill set to do that has become incredibly sophisticated and building an agency to do that type of work. I mean, that's, that's what I'm really interested in doing right now. Well, our listeners always enjoy hearing about kind of how uh, teams are staffed and how agencies are, are mm -hmm. scaled. Um, tell us a little bit about the structure and kind of the team that you work directly with. So the way that we have, have tried to sort of, um, set the best teams up possible, it, it really comes around sort of strategy and, and creative work and super close together. I, I feel like the strongest work we do is whenever those two things literally happen at the same time. So that you don't have that sort of 
rugby handoff of like strategy does something and hands it to the creative, creative does something and hands it to technology. I think that was a very old way of working. Um, I think the way that we've kind of blended teams together now were a lot of um, skills that were maybe considered downstream, later on production skills have been pulled up to the top. Um, so that everybody has a really clear understanding of what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it, and everybody's invested in the end product. But that requires you to staff differently. Um, that's expensive um, because it means people being kept on the project for longer periods of time, um, not switched in and switched out, you know, depending on when you need them. So it requires investment, and, and that's something that we've we've sort of admitted to upfront that that's that's how we're going to work, and that's how we're going to set our teams up. Um, so certain skill sets will stay all the way through the projects, stay engaged. Um, so that type of casting, we think, has become really important um, to get the work that we want to get out of it. Um, the other side of it that we're finding interesting is as people move through agencies, um, you know, you might get a shelf life of a person at an agency now for three to five years before someone moves on and tries something else and tries something else. Sure. So you're sometimes you're on the back end of that and you're losing talent, and on the other side of it, you're bringing new talent in, which is you know that, that constant rotation of talent is has its downside and upside. And I feel like the upside is that you're bringing people into an agency that have an incredible experience behind them. Um, and a lot of times agencies kind of forget that their career didn't start the day they walk through your agency. They actually bring a lot of, a lot of experience with them. So we're trying to figure out ways to sort of unpack that, unpackage that and actually use like the, their full resume, if, if you know what I mean, to sort of like bring that, their sort of experience to the table. And we, we, we're sort of building internal tools for doing that. Um, that really allow us to sort of stay educated about our workforce, just even learn about people's side hustles. You know, uh, I mean, I do it. I mean, we all do it. It's like to get that sort of like kick of design that you don't get in your job. Um, you have your thing on the side that sort of keeps you happy and keeps you sane, and makes you remember why you did what you did. Um, like finding that out about some of the people on my teams, like after knowing them for two years, has been really interesting. So I'll give you an example. There's one guy. Uh, he's an art director in one of our offices, writes soundtracks in the spare time. Oh, really? So, and then to the left of that, we have projects where we're doing audio design and we're doing like, you know, so you put those two things together and all of a sudden a guy's side hustle becomes part of his job. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to sort of figure that out, but it's, you know, it's a work in progress and it always will be, probably always should be. Um, but that's, that, that sort of side of casting and finding more and more interest and is really trying to plug people's personal passion into their day job and, and see if we can use that. You know, when you talk about kind of the reasons why you got into it, um, I'm always curious with, uh, especially with senior people in senior roles uh, with design backgrounds or illustration backgrounds, you know, how much, how much do you get to actually design today or maybe what is a typical day or week look like for you? Is it mostly management and admin and meetings or are you kind of doing a little bit of everything? Yeah, it's, it's not enough <laughs> would be <laughs> the easiest answer. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a trained designer and I, I, I think we, we talked before about, you know, best advice you've ever been given. And, you know, the best advice I ever got was from an ex-CEO who basically said, you know, don't make design your day job, make it your passion. And, you know, make sure that you've got something in your life that allows you to sort of do that passion that isn't connected to your job because your job won't always allow you to do it. And I think the more senior that you get, the further and further you do step away from being the hands-on designer. Um, but in saying that, you know, I've, I do things like, you know, every morning I go off an hour on my calendar that's inaccessible to anyone in the company. 
And that hour is for me to either look at design, read about design, do design, or just think. Um, and I feel like if I didn't do that, um, I'd be cheating on myself. It would be, it would be pretty bad. Um, so I, I've had to do things like that just for my own personal like sanity, just to make sure that, that I, I, every day I'm thinking about the thing that I love in my job. Um, and that seems to be working for me. It's good. Um, but outside of that, I think you're right. There's a, a lot of design management happens, especially at the CCO level, a lot of client time, um, a lot of new business time, um, like selling the agency and who we are and what we stand for and our culture. That's a large part of the job. Um, and then, you know, for select clients where, that I, I, I go deep with because we've gone deep with them in a pitch and then you continue the relationship, you're still involved there, but mostly working with a team, you're still not hands-on, even in those scenarios. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a team of, you know, nearly 250 designers at this point within the company that that's their job. And it's my job to facilitate them getting the opportunity in a large way. So you talked a little bit about your, uh, your pitches. What, mm-hmm. what are you guys looking for in a client and what, what makes a really great client for critical mass? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. That was one of the ones whenever you sent the questions through, I was like, oh, what can I say here? <laughs> um, I think, you know, for me, the, the, the great clients that we've got, I think we're an agency that the more that you work with us, the more that you will get out of us. We're not a very project-based agency. We're much more of a relationship-based agency. We have clients that have worked with us for 10, 12, 14 years. Um, and I think they stick with us for, for good reason. And, and I think it's because we built up an understanding and we built up a trust. And I think that's critical to getting that like, great work. Um, actually, new clients are the hardest because I, I feel like you spend so much time up front investing in the relationship and establishing the project. And as you know, time is money. So budget's getting burned just to get things going. Right. Um, you know, when you, whenever you've been working with a client for years, the projects start way more naturally and you kind of know what to expect from both parties. Um, so I think that side of it is, has been um, where I feel, feel we, we do our best work. I mean, it's a classic, you know, I listen to you, you listen to me sort of relationship, I think is, is that's what we do really well. Um, and then, you know, the client typically come and tell you what you want, what they want, and then you come back and tell them what they need. Like being able to have that sort of open dialogue is not easy whenever you're dating for the first time with a new client. You know, it's that, that sort of honesty is, is hard to come by. Um, so that, that's what we look for in a client is like the opportunity to go long-term with them, the opportunity mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and I think we have the portfolio of work that proves that when we do do that, it works. So that, that's kind of our ideal client. It's, it's not really a vertical. It's not really um, a type of work. It's more a type of relationship I think we excel at. So do most of those new clients come through like a competitive, pet, uh, competitive pitch process or... Are they referrals or are they inbound? Like where, where do clients a, come from? It's a little bit of a mixture. The, the newer ones, uh, we, we do have a lot of business that evolves out of um, growth of existing clients, which I think is really healthy. Um, mm-hmm. The newer side of it um, comes from both of those. We, we've had referrals where a past client will have moved on to a new, a new brand side position. Um, and had a really good working relationship with us before and wants to bring us into where they went. So that, that happens. Um, and then there is a lot of new business and the new business um, situation engine is in- incredible. I, I feel like the timeframes get shorter and shorter. The ask gets bigger and bigger. 
um, that clients want more and more in that two-week pitch phase to make their decision to the point where we've had a couple of pitches lately where the client just kind of like bought the pitch, which makes me just want to shake my head at them and say, no, 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 you can't do that. We need this. <laughs> it's like we need more time. Um, I mean, so I guess sometimes you get lucky in a pitch and you absolutely nail the work. You know, you just, it's either you have the right team on it and everything comes together and you just land it and it works really well. So, it, you know, maybe in those instances, the pitch is not a bad place to kick off the project, but we tend to like to call it um, like a point zero on a project. Whenever you win a new piece of business, we actually put the pitch up on the wall and we critique the pitch with the client as a way to sort of get the dialogue going a little bit, just to just figure out what, what we did. Is, did we do what was right? Was it good? Was it bad? What did you like about it? What was wrong? Um, so we, we almost use the pitch as, as, a, as kind of like a, you know, like fodder for a discussion. Um, so it's, but the amount of effort you're required to put into pitches these days to win is, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible investment for agencies to do it. And, you know, it's incredibly competitive, as you know, it's like for every pitch out there, there's maybe 10, sometimes up to 12 people pitching it. Um, so it's, that's an effort. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I asked you this in advance, so we can <laughs> we can wave off if you want. But yeah. I'm curious if there's anything, especially at that early pitch level, that mm. is a red flag to you guys of if the client's asking for this or they exhibit these kind of things, yeah. we know it's not going to be a fit for us. And what what would some of those red flags be for you guys? Um, you know, I think in the in the work that we're doing. Uh, I think everybody works on the assumption that it's digital, therefore it's quick. Um, and right. it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's, well, it, it could be, but it might not be very good work at the end of it. Um, so usually what we look for up front is like, it's really about expectations. You know, you, you'll have a client coming with like, I guess there's three things that we look at. It's like, what are they asking for? What's the time frame they're asking for it in? and what budget have they got to spend on it. And if those three things don't come together in some sort of triangle, it makes sense. We've walked away and, and you should, because if you don't walk away then, you're definitely walking away three months down the line or five months down the line, whenever the project is size, um, because they don't have enough money to achieve what they want or they want it too much in the time frame, and you under deliver. Or you, you know. So you can see those problems pretty quickly and pretty early. Um, and so those are the three things that we would kind of look for when a, when a new client comes. It's really about what's the expectation and how we pull it off. Um, well, speaking of red flags, I have a 14-week-old puppy who's on the sofa next to me, and he is uh, not very trustworthy right now. So I'm going to grab him, <laughs> which will take three seconds. I just locked my dog out of the room. <laughs> And, and I'm just going to hold him for the rest of the interview yeah, because uh, he, won't, he won't pee on me, but he will definitely pee on the couch. So I just, before we got on, I just locked my dog outside the room because she hadn't seen me in two weeks. And she was like, <laughs> a little on. excited. Yeah. So listener, if you hear any snorting or, or wheezing, that is, uh, that's Bruce. That's not me. That's not Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, well, tell us about maybe, um, a rough spot or when things don't go exactly how you want, or maybe it's creative block or whatever you want to call it. But what are yeah. some of your, your approaches to work through those things? Yeah. Um, there was a, a, a quote that I pinned up on, on my desk years ago by creatives loving their own solutions and designers loving a problem. Hmm. I feel like 
that that is when things tend to go south on, on project, I think. I mean, at least where I've experienced the first time as a designer and then also see it just within teams. I think, um, you know, projects that we work on, you know, as part of these massive organizations like global organizations, certain clients can get very focused on a certain thing, a certain moment in time and a certain deliverable that they have to do. And you kind of, they kind of lose a little bit of the big picture, a little bit of like, where does this all plug in and, and how does it all work together? And if you think about our job, I mean, a lot of it is about kind of like emotional coherence of like, how do you put all of these things together under a brand and make them all work together? Yeah. Uh, it feels like it's coming from the same brand and, and it should feel like it's coming from the same brand. We know when you get that right, that's when it works really well. But I feel like a lot of pro projects that are maybe driven by a certain person inside an organization, like that's not their job. Their job is to get their deliverable done in their in the best way possible because they're on the hook for that certain thing. And they'll do anything to make that happen. And I think sometimes the compromises they make in those moments really ruin that bigger emotional coherence. And I think that's where, you know, a, a client who has doesn't have the ability to step back and, and make the right decision, even though in that moment in time it might be a little bit painful, but the pain on the road will road will disappear. Um, because it, it'll be part of a bigger picture and fit. Um, that's where I literally I could like trace 10 projects where that you could see that literally play out in front of you. And even though you tell a client that's what's happening, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> they're, they're, they're fixated on their thing and what they have to do. And, and uh, you know, I, 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 it's just one of those parts, part of the job. You just have to roll with it and do the best that you can. Um, there's not a lot you can change on that because the, our, our incentives for doing good work as an agency are very different to the incentives of that particular client in that particular moment in time. And they're the clients, so they always win. We're just not driven by the same, the same goal a lot of the times. Well, I think the challenge is that, that humans naturally want to go with the, the comfortable, safe solution that, that they feel yeah. confidence in. And the reality is when it comes to, to design or messaging or branding is that the thing that's the most different, the thing that's probably the right answer is what's going to feel the most uncomfortable. So there's that kind of yeah. inherent balance. Yeah. Risk is not a word they want to hear. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, what are some of your um, most favorite things to work on right now? Um, I'm really enjoying this kind of like, this sort of coming together of different medias within digital art and digital screens. And I, I'm including TV now as digital screens well, by the way, it's all the same to me. Um, so, you know, I, I started out as a visual designer and then moved into interaction design. So that was visual design moving and, and doing what it does. Then we've layered on top of that film. Um, and we shoot, we have our own content studio. We shoot like, you know, very, very high quality content, storyboarded the same way you would make a film. And then you lay on top of that audio design, whether it be, you know, audio design to back up an interaction or whether it be music or whether it be ambient, you put all those things together, you're working with a pretty sophisticated palette of tools. Um, and those types of projects I feel are what the platforms, even right down to the phone platform, I mean, that's really what, what's required today for it to be considered good design or a good experience. Like if you're missing some of those components, like if you feel like part of the jigsaw hasn't happened. Um, and I think, you know, the users, you know, the generation behind us and the generation behind them 
are very sophisticated. Like they expect this now. They're much more trained in design than, or at least a, a design eye for what's good than I was when I was a kid at 16, 18 growing up. I, I feel like that's what they're expecting. I feel like that's what we have to deliver. So those types of projects that give us the opportunity to do that are cool. Um, a lot of new formats that we're working in, you know, the whole voice interaction thing sort of started to happen. You know, I, I don't know whether to be super scared about it or super happy. I've spent <laughs> 30 years being a visual designer and now it's all going to go away because we just talk to things. I, I don't know. Right. Uh, so there, there's, there's that, that, but I, I'm kind of excited about it because I think what it's going to do is it's going to free up the visual screen to do something else. If, if we take all the interaction off the visual screen and we just talk to what we want and need, that, that changes that visual screen to being something else. And I think that's, that's going to be an interesting thing to explore and try and, and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, there was a story a while ago. I mean, it's a common product now, but we worked on one of the first apps to go on the Apple Watch for Citibank. And they were billed as being the, going to be the first bank app on the Apple Watch. Um, and we had, I think it was something like maybe eight, 10 weeks to turn this around. And we had never seen a watch. And Apple didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just essentially designed for a whole new platform, a whole new screen that we'd never seen before. We'd never put on our wrist. We didn't know how big to make type. We didn't know anything, right? So you were kind of in this weird place of like, oh, so we're putting this thing on the screen. And, you know, we were doing things like going and finding spy shots of Apple Watches online and then trying to like make our own CAD files so we could 3D print them and put them on our wrist so we could see what size text needed to be when you held it away from your wrist at a certain distance. You know, things like that were in the moment incredibly stressful because you're like, how do we do this? Um, but at the same time, kind of exciting, like the designers that were working on that, that was like, that was intense, but it was kind of fun. Um, like trying to, like trying to hack your way to like a really good design when you, when you don't really know. And then taking that into Apple to be approved was, you know, even they hadn't seen it. <laughs> so it was kind of one of those <laughs> developing the human interface guidelines at the time. So you're, you're showing them stuff where they were like, Oh, we hadn't actually thought of that. So there was this kind of really nice, to and fro of like, that's actually interesting that time. Because they, their experience in the platform was, you know, almost as naive as ours because it was new. Um, so things like that, I, I, I love working on stuff like that, where there's like a new format that you can try out um, and, and see what you can do. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, that's, that's, that's risky and kind of exciting at the same time. I have a feeling in the coming years, we're gonna see even more new oh, yeah. formats, new devices, new, yeah things that we so, just haven't even thought of yet. Weirdly, you know, I've made a career out of um, working in formats that rather build is going to die and then come back to life. I mean, I started working in book jackets that the e-reader was supposed to kill. All right. Still here, they're selling more than e-readers right now. Um, and I started working on record covers and then iTunes came along. My vinyl's coming back. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, maybe the same thing's going to happen with websites. I, I don't know. I mean, everybody keeps talking about how voice is going to change everything interact maybe i don't know we'll see we'll see what happens well um this is a bit of a segue but um tell me about one of your proudest professional moments uh you know it was, it was kind of interesting growing up in in sort of working class family in belfast where you know graphic design wasn't a term that was talked about around the kitchen table um you know when i went to college i didn't even 
really understand, I think, what graphic design was. I originally went to college, art college, to do printmaking of all things and be an artist, and I've ended up being a designer. And it was only when I went to college that I learned about it, but hence, you know, no one in my family had any idea what I did or what I was doing. And no matter how many times I try and explain to them what I did, they still didn't get it. Um, but there was a, a, a moment in time, I was actually in London, and my father had come over to visit me in London, and we were walking down Oxford Street, and we got to the bottom of Oxford Street, and there was the Virgin Megastore. Do you remember the Virgin Megastore where they used to sell records? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they had a, a window display. I can't even remember what the artist was at this point, but there was a window display of both like the 10 albums to get for Christmas kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And two of them were albums that I designed that were in the window. So I stopped and was like, look, that's what I do. And I pointed at the window and he was like, wow, that's amazing. You did these? And like, so we had this conversation in the street. And then it followed. Um, so you took the pictures? And I was like, well, no, uh, I commissioned the photographer. Uh, <laughs> well, hang on, you didn't take the picture. He's like, no, uh, but you know, I commissioned the guy that took the picture. He said, well, what did you do? And I was like, well, I put the topography on. I did the layout and I worked the thing. He's like, so you stuck the words on. That's what you did. <laughs> so my father's interpretation of what I did as a graphic designer was sticking words on pictures, which is not too funny. <laughs> but um, it was kind of one of those moments. But even through him joking through this, I could still see him being proud of actually what I'd done and the fact that it was out there and you know part of the world and would be there forever because you know these things last; they're permanent, they're printed. Um, and it was sort of you know, a moment for me where I was kind of proud to be able to show him that what I was doing was actually real. <laughs> and that somebody was paying me for doing something that was worth it. Yeah. Do you remember what those two albums were? Oh, man. I think I was working at DECA Records. And uh, I know they were for DECA. I can't think what they were. But one of them he got. I actually think one of them was a classical album. Um, and he, he knew the artist that was on there. So he was instantly impressed by the fact that I'd done work for that artist. The other one he'd never heard of and didn't even want to talk about it. So <laughs> there, was, there was one of them he sort of made the association. Yeah. Do you have any um, current design heroes or did you have any design heroes as you were coming up in the biz? Um, coming up, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you know being a, a sort of kid of the 80s and 90s, and listening to Joy Division and New Order and everyone else, um, you know, Peter Saville, Von Oliver, all those guys, you know, I didn't even know who they were at the time, but I loved their work. Um, 4AD Records, I think I owned everything they ever put out. You know, and, I, and then through doing that, you realize, oh, one guy did all of these. Von Oliver did all of these. Are you kidding me? Like, how talented is that? Um, and then I remember uh, when I was at uh, college, Peter Saville actually came in and did a talk to us. And it was probably the best talk that's ever given. As you can imagine, Peter Savile's not one for PowerPoint. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, he came in with a box full of just uh, stuff. And there was a table at the front of the room, massive sort of 10-foot table at the front of this lecture hall where we were all sitting. I just came in and just literally took the box and tipped it onto the table. And he was like, okay, what do you guys want to talk about? And in that box was original artwork for Joy Division, New Order, all sorts of stuff. He just he basically, I think, just went around the studio before he came in to talk to us and just threw things in a box. And then he had a, sto he had a story about everything in that box. And that was incredible just to hear him talk about where he found things and how he originated ideas and thinking, like really give me an insight into like the mind of like a design genius. I mean, the guy like, 
you know, his style has been replicated a thousand times since. You know, I feel like he, Peter Saab and Bob Oliver were probably the ones that I related to most. Today, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure today. I mean, I, I think when you're younger, you look for heroes. You know, you're looking for like the light. You look for how do you, how do I, how do I get there? And you know, now I, I, I look for clients. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of my clients are heroes. You know, some of the clients I work with that have been very brave, and and I think that they're the ones where you kind of like you, you're in it together. So it's a different type of hero now. But as far as design goes, in the past, it was those guys um, that, that really sort of stayed with me. Still do. I mean, behind me here somewhere in a box, I have like all the original 4ID stuff still here. I still kept it all. It's like, you know. That's cool. You never saw that. Yeah. So, um, you know, for everyone who's been on the show, I've asked them the same question. Um, we designers and creative types are kind of an obsessive group, which is that's yeah. the name of the show. So I'm curious what it is that you find that you're most obsessed with right now. Uh, in a good or a bad way <laughs> or both. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Either way. Um, um, you know, just coming back from Japan, I was just there. I literally came back last night and I had walking around their supermarkets was incredible. Like the packaging design. I've never done packaging design. I've never it's never a genre that I've sort of been asked to do or worked in, but I have a really high appreciation of like what it is and, and what's good in it. Walking around their supermarkets, it, it was a random stop. We were doing a bike ride. We stopped to get water and we were in this massive supermarket. And I was literally in my cycling kit, the cycling shoes, walking up and down the aisles, just like, I want to buy that. I want to buy this. I want to buy that. And then I realized I got nowhere to put it because I'm on a bike. Um, but the packaging design was incredible, right down to that sort of consumer goods level, which is essentially throwaway disposable stuff. Mm -hmm. They um, obsess over it, like obsess, like the quality of the packaging, the paper, the printing, in a way that we don't in the UK and we don't in the US. I mean, that's considered just like you rip it off, you throw it in the bin, you're done. Um, over there, completely different. So when I travel, which is where I find a lot of inspiration and where, where I really get obsessed is I go to supermarkets and I go and I look around at package and design or I go into a bookshop in a foreign country and I look for a publisher that I've never heard of and I try and like find something that's like, look at the way they did this, look at the way they're using paper and stuff like that. Even though it's not really connected to my job anymore, it's, it's what it gets me going, you know? So that I'm obsessed with when I travel. Um, the obsession that's, that's killing me right now is I feel like the over, uh, I think the industry is over obsessed with data and artificial intelligence and, and, and the, what it's going to do for, for design and creativity. It's um, for a while I was really excited about it and two years on, I'm kind of like, but it still hasn't happened. And when it has happened, it's been a disaster in a lot of cases. Um, so I'm kind of still waiting and I'm wondering, is it actually ever going to happen? You know, it's like the whole programmatic side of, of that is, is, you know, kind of from a business perspective, very interesting, but it's kind of turning design into paint by numbers. And it's, it's kind of a little bit depressing <laughs> whenever you think about going through a career and, and thinking about that interrelationship of all of the things that you put together to make something work. Now being every single item of that being controlled by a piece of code, that essentially makes design just whatever the code thinks it needs to be. Um, I think there's a balance needs to be hit there. And I, I think we're some way off hitting that balance right now. And I, I think the fear is that business is going to overrun 
any designer is like hand in the ring saying, hang on a minute, this doesn't look good. Right. Um, it's going to get like squashed pretty quickly um, because the business logic of doing that is going <laughs> to outweigh that person's emotional connection to that piece of work. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm constantly looking for examples where it has worked um, to sort of prove that it can work and what made it work are the opposite. I'm also looking for examples where it's gone wrong and to not repeat it. Um, so just because we're talking about it a lot and I work in digital, um, I, I feel like it's important to get it right and, and to have an opinion on it. And, and so I'm obsessed with trying to find an opinion on it right now. I'm not sure I have one, but I'm getting there. Um, but it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of look at data as just like language. It's, it's just another language and it's what we make it say is what's going to make it interesting. Um, and I don't think we've figured that out yet. Um, everybody keeps talking about data and it's just, it's just more research as far as I'm concerned. So I think that's, I'm obsessed with that one as well. That's good. I love that you've got two answers for that, both a, a positive and a negative. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. So maybe your answer to this doesn't have anything to do with data, but, um, you know, do you have any dream projects that you're looking forward to or something you haven't tackled yet that you want to get after? Yeah, I, would, I would love to work on the Olympics. <laughs> oh, that'd be a good one. I'd love to do that. Just the sheer scale of it. And like, it is truly global. Like we, you know, we, you call yourself a global agency and you have clients that are in many countries and many regions, but Nothing is more global than either the World Cup or the Olympics. I mean, every country in the world, every language in the world looks at it. And I think the, the Olympics, more than anything, the design system, it has to wrap that up and package it. It goes from communication design right all the way through to stadium design and everything else would be an incredible. I mean, for a designer to work on that would be incredible. I can't imagine working for the IOC would be easy. Um, but, <laughs> but I, I think it would be the scale of the project would be incredibly attractive. Yeah. So if you were, um, you know, something horrible happened tomorrow, you weren't able to do design or mm. work in this space anymore. What, what do you think you'd be doing? So, I mean, my second passion outside of design is, is riding bikes. Um, I used to race. I'm obsessed with cycling. I still ride a lot. I just got back from Japan. I just rode for uh, seven days in Japan to raise money for cancer. Um, I think if I wasn't designing the way that I do today, I think I'd be building bike frames. Mm. Um, I think I probably would have gone off and learned how to do TIG welding, and I would have gone off and learned design and build bike frames and then maybe more importantly, which gets back to the design side of it, painting them and, and what paint goes on. There's, there's a, a real reemergence of the craft of frame building happening all over the world. And both in the US and Britain are really leading it, like young guys building with steel um, and doing their own paint design. And some of the paint designs are incredible. I mean, they're beautiful I and mean, they're like pieces of art. Um, I could happily see myself doing that. I, I'd be very content doing it because it would use some of the things that are in me that I do in my day job today. But it would also give me a very hands-on tactile thing. That I, I think I miss a little bit with, with digital work where you actually, you're, you know, you're getting dirty and, and making something. Um, that, you know, if I go right back to my roots and where I started as a, trying to be a printmaker, I mean, printmakers are notoriously dirty and mucky because <laughs> you're playing with <laughs> 
you know, there was some, there's something in me in, in my background where I, I like that sort of make, pulling something out of a mess and making it into something. Um, so I think frame making would sort of put me back there again. So I'd be very happy doing that. Yeah. Maybe still do it someday. So I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but thank you so much for being on the show after being out of the country for the last seven days. That's- oh, it was a pleasure. It was, it's, I, whenever the guys told me about it, I mean, I'd heard of the podcast and I saw the questions. And I was like, this is going to be fun. This will be good. So yeah, no problem. Was that your first trip to Japan? It was properly, yeah, because, you know, usually you, you'll pass through, like with most of us in this industry, you pass through an airport and a hotel. So you right. say, you've been to all these countries. Yeah. And, Does that yeah. count? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the good thing about this particular trip is because we were riding, we were um, really in the countryside, we're in the Japanese Alps. So oh, cool. The days in Tokyo, we actually really got to see the country. And, and that was incredible. Like we stayed at beautiful historic onsens and, uh, Traveled around a lot on the bikes, obviously, and met incredible people, saw incredible history and culture that I don't think you see if you're in a car and you're driving, like you see it a different way when you're on a bike, um, which was which was super cool. I loved it. I mean, all, and actually, all of the guys that did the ride with me um, all work for either Google or like this. We're all in the industry. We're all creative. Oh, yeah. And so the whole time we're riding around, it's like a, it's like a design show on wheels. <laughs> we're all just like taking pictures and talking about stuff that we see. It was, it was kind of funny. Um, we do it every year. There's a group of us do these rides every year to raise, raise money. And, and uh, usually we, we try and sort of, you know, go somewhere like Japan or somewhere that's a little bit of a challenge. And this time it was like, it was, I mean, the country's amazing. Absolutely, truly amazing. That's cool. Definitely high on my list of places I'd like to visit soon. Yeah. Um, so maybe travel is part of this, but, um, where do you look for, for inspiration? Travel is a big part of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of miss living in Europe a little bit when I lived in London, if you can get on a train in London or get on a plane for an hour and you can be in any of 15, 20 countries, um, in the U S I do that. I can maybe just escape the edges of New York. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, I used to travel a lot when I was in Europe and I, you know, you know, one week go to Spain, next week go to Italy, next week go to France, next week go to Denmark, you know, and whenever you're going through those types of cultures, you're getting exposed to everything from Norwegian and Scandinavian design all the way down to Italian fashion into like Spanish graphic design. Yeah. You know, so whenever you travel like that, even if you're not conscious of it, even if you're not consciously actively looking for inspiration, it's you're, it's coming through your skin when you travel. Like you're seeing it, you're feeling it. Um, so travel to me is a big part of it. And and I've traveled all over the world. I've traveled a lot. And a lot of times when I come back, I realize I've brought inspiration back and didn't know it was inspiration. You know, whether it be like a color palette or font if you've seen on a weird mm-hmm. storefront in Milan somewhere. You know, it's photographing this stuff becomes reference. Um, I'm not a big believer in in things like um, Pinterest and Dribble and things like that. I think that's made inspiration too easy. And in a weird way, it's almost like you go on to like, you know, Pinterest, there's like mood boards about doing mood boards. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's a little of, better. <laughs> it's a little, yeah, it's, it's a little borrowed inspiration. You know, I feel like inspiration should be hard to find and it should be incredibly personal. Um, otherwise we all start looking the same, you know, and I yeah. think the internet's made it really easy for us all to look the same. Um, so I try and use my own personal experience like travel as the way to find inspiration. And 
I don't typically share it that often. I tend to keep it hidden in a folder. I mean, I have Pinterest boards, but they're all private. <laughs> no one sees them. <laughs> right. um, and it's, it's, it's stuff that's just very, very personal to me. And it actually probably in a lot of instances would be pretty hard to explain to people why it is inspirational. Um, but I find it either curious or there's something about it that, you know, I keep, but at some point it becomes inspiration um, down the line. So it's, yeah, the, that side of it is that the travel to me would be the biggest part of it. And I'm not really using all of the, these new inspiration tools that we have. But I still spend time in them. I still find value in them. We're designing, um, I just used, I probably used Pinterest for the first time properly where we're doing some construction work on our property up here. So I was like looking for architecture reference and actually Pinterest was very helpful. Um, so, you know, even for stuff like that, I will use it, but for my design work, it's, it's not coming from places like that. Well, I think you've dropped several pieces of advice on us here during the show, but maybe before we let you go, is there anything that is kind of like a favorite piece of advice to pass along to new hires or younger designers? I think that, 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 that sort of, uh, part of the conversation we had earlier that, that I got, you know, I was trying to get all my design happiness out of my day job. And I think that's a really hard thing to achieve. I think some people are very, very lucky and can do that, that they only work with clients that they want to work with and, you know, and, and do work that they want to do. I mean, that's a very rarefied position to be in. Um, so I do feel like having your, if you want to call it a side hustle or a side passion or something else, I think it's important just for you to be able to express and design in an area that you want to do and you're doing it for yourself and not for someone else. Um, so I think getting that balance right is important. And I think that the, the second thing is you, you are going to work on projects you do not want to work on and you are going to work with clients you do not want to work with, um, but that's your job. And <laughs> it's your job to get good work out of those scenarios, both for your agency or you, um, but also for the client. I think you just have to be comfortable with that. And I, I see designers on my teams over the years still struggle with that at pretty senior levels. And I'm like, you've got to get past that really early um, and realize what you're doing. You're not an artist, you're a designer. It's, yeah. it's a big difference. Um, and and the way, I think the way that you find that balance and you find that kind of peace of mind in doing it is you have that side hustle because you can go home and switch the thing on that you love and do it. And and you're responsible to no one but yourself. And I think that's where you, getting that balance is going to be incredibly important. Well, maybe before we let you go, you can uh, let all our listeners know where they can find you online, you know, your Pinterest handle and all that <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> I don't have a Pinterest account. Um, Instagram, I, I shoot a lot of photography, so you can find me on Instagram. So under C. Brady, you can find me there. Um, I used to run a cycling blog uh, called El Ciclista that I essentially stopped because I, I got tired of writing about other people's good stuff. <laughs> I wanted to do my own. So I'm going to relaunch that soon and it'll be my own kind of personal projects probably that I do on there. And then obviously through all of our design work is there on criticalmass.com. Um, incredibly proud of the work that we do. So like the, the, the work as a designer or a CTO, it's all up there. Yeah. Well, awesome. Connor, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. This is great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 122 
in the books. For all of today's show notes, be sure to head over to obsessedshow.com. As we expand our topics here at Obsessed Show, please tweet at Obsessed Show and let me know who else you think we should talk to. Do you want to hear from video people, from authors, from painters? What kind of creators and creatives and makers are most interesting to you? Because that's who I want to interview on this show. Don't forget to check out that new 59 Second Friday series all about personal branding and marketing on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash Josh Miles. And it would mean a lot to me if you just hit that subscribe button. Every subscriber means a lot. You can get all of today's show notes on our website, still at obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Of course, all the links are over at obsessedshow.com to all the places you can find this show, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So no matter where you find your podcasts, chances are you can listen to Obsessed Show from there. Just head over to obsessedshow.com. The Obsessed Show was named by a creative director at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Visit milesherndon.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.